John chapter 17 as we continue in this study together. The title of the message this morning is The Mission-Minded. As I prepared this message and I considered the, the ways of the mission-minded person, I have to be honest with you that one individual instantly popped into my mind. And the name of that individual is Michael Phelps. If you have followed the story of Michael Phelps, you will know that this amazing athlete has been forced to face some very intense and personal problems, just like any human being would. But he has made some, some choices that have had a, a negative effect on his life. He has made choices that have uh, led him to regret some of those decisions, to be sure. But here, ultimately, at the end of the day, is how I believe people will remember Michael Phelps. We have a picture of Michael Phelps there, Nathan. People will remember Michael Phelps as a ferocious competitor. They will remember Michael Phelps as the man who is the most decorated athlete in Olympic history. He finished his career with 23 gold medals. You think about that? Can you imagine winning one gold medal? Let me back up. Can you imagine winning any medals? <laughs> and, and this young man wins 23 gold medals, 28 medals combined. There is no question in my mind that Michael Phelps is a mission-minded person. You see, as a young man, a, a, a young boy, he set, him, he set a goal for himself to be a great athlete. And that translated into becoming the, the greatest swimmer in American history and quite possibly the greatest swimmer of all time. But racing or competing in an athletic contest is something that is here today and gone tomorrow. Competing, you see, will not last forever. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, our mission is altogether different. Our mission is an eternal pursuit. Like Michael Phelps, we are, of course, in a race, but this race is a totally different kind of race. Paul the Apostle describes the mission-minded person as someone who forgets what is in the past and someone who is straining forward to what is ahead. He says it in Philippians 3, verse 14, like this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible this morning that you have reached a place in your life where the finish line just does not seem real. Or maybe it seems that you will never cross the finish line. Something has, has invaded your life. Something has come into your world where you, you cannot even foresee crossing the finish line. Some of you may battle the very notion of crossing the finish line because you are uh, living a life filled with regret. You have made decisions that, that make it almost impossible for you to forge into the future. And so the very notion of being mission-minded today for you is the very last thing on your mind. Or possibly, personal pain or tragedy has clouded your perspective. That's the case for many believers these days. A, a perspective that was once filled with great thoughts, a, a perspective that was once filled with optimistic thoughts, thoughts that were filled with, with uh, aspirations to glorify the great God of the universe. Whatever you are struggling with, 
Whatever you are tempted by, whatever you are battling, let us come full circle and answer this critical question this morning. The question I want to wrestle with is this. What are the marks of the mission-minded follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? So with your Bibles open to John chapter 17, would you stand with me as we read our passage this morning, beginning in verse 17. Jesus says right in the middle of the high priestly prayer as he prays to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We pray with me. Holy Father, uh, what a, a delight it has been to walk slowly through the high priestly prayer of your son. Now, God, as we consider the, the ways of the mission minded follower of Christ, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth before us. God, I pray that you would do more than energize our, our hearts. I pray that you would uh, ignite our minds. I pray that you would um, get our feet on the ground, that there would be uh, boots on the ground and hands that are mobilized for ministry. Father, I pray that today, if there is someone who has been coming week after week after week, and not involved in, in service at Christ Fellowship or involved in service in this community, that today would be the day where a significant choice would be made. I pray that for more than just one or two people. I pray that for many people, that today you, by the power of your Spirit, would show us the importance, the indispensable need to be a mission-minded follower of Christ. And at the end of the day, God, we admit that none of this is possible apart from the gospel. It is not about uh, garnering our willpower. It is not a matter of just merely being self-disciplined. It is a matter of embracing the gospel and being fueled and propelled into the future by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we commit this time to you and ask that your people would be served well and encouraged on this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What are the marks of the mission-minded person? We're going to see three answers to that question, really, and form that into to, to one sentence as we come to the end of the message. But here's what I want you to remember. The answer to this question will be totally dependent and hinge on the truth. The answer to this question will hinge on the truth. Last week, you will remember that we learned about the proper mindset of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We said it this way, that the proper mindset for a follower of Jesus is to remember how the world views us and to also remain faithful to Christ in the world. And so now Jesus, he continues in his high priestly prayer to the Father, and he reveals for us in very basic terms the marks of a mission-minded follower of Jesus. The first is this, it's found in verse 17, and that is that the mission-minded are consecrated by the truth. Look at verse 17 with me. He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. If we are going to understand what it means to be consecrated by the truth, we need to first look at the meaning of consecration. Consecration is a word that we don't use much anymore in our culture. But Jesus Christ says, sanctify them or consecrate them in the truth. 
That word sanctify or consecrate is a word that comes from the Greek language that means to make holy. To make holy. If you desire, as every Christ follower should, to be sanctified, really what you're saying is you want to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans chapter 8 says in very stark terms that every follower of Jesus will in fact be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I would ask you, how many of you have reached that place? And the answer is... I don't see any hands. None of us have come to the place where we have been fully conformed to the image of Christ. But it will happen. One day when we receive our glorified bodies, we will, in fact, every follower of Christ will be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, the purpose of consecration, the purpose of sanctification here to sanctify them in the truth is really twofold. The first purpose of consecration or sanctification is one of service. We are consecrated by the truth for the purpose of service. In Exodus 28, verse 41, the Lord says, You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with them, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them. Why? That they may serve me as priests. You see, we hear about people talking about the notion of being sanctimonious or holier than thou. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reason that Jesus calls his people to be sanctified is, first of all, for the purpose of service. In Exodus 29, verse 1, God once again says, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that is to sanctify them, that they may serve me as priests. You may be familiar in Jeremiah chapter 1 that Jeremiah the prophet, that he was set apart before he was even born. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And so the first purpose, you see, of being consecrated by the truth is one of service. And we will look at many practical ways of applying that truth to our lives here in a few minutes. Now, the second purpose beyond service of being consecrated by the truth is to be sent. To be sent. Unless uh, Sam Clark comes up to me, and he's done this several times. And Sam, I want to tell you, I appreciate it. I really do. I remember the first time it happened, Sam came up to me and he said, Pastor Dave... I have to tell you something. You didn't tell us you were sent. And I thought, oh my word, I can't believe it. Sam, how old are you now? I just got, I just, I just got it from the 10-year-old. I forgot. Well, the reason, Sam, I want you to continue to remind me is this important reality. As Christ followers, we are the sent ones. The Greek word to sanctify means not only to set apart for a special office or a special task, it also means to equip a person with the necessary qualities of mind and heart and character that make, it, that make one ready to perform that task. In other words, we are sanctified not only for service, but we are sanctified to be sent out. You say, is this the, the message about world missions? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we are all called to be missionaries. Some of you have 
heard me tell the story that when I was a senior in high school, I said to God, God, you are sovereign. Your son, he's my savior. He is the Lord of my life. I see Tom smiling because he's referred to this story several times in our conversation. I will do anything for you, God, except be a pastor or a missionary. Don't ever tell God you don't want to be a pastor or a missionary. I've since come to the conclusion I'm never going to tell God that I will plant a church in Hawaii. Never, 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 right? (laughs) Our future success, says J.D. Greer, resides in our ability to raise up disciples who can in turn make disciples. We're going to look at the mission statement here in a few moments at Christ Fellowship. We're going to look at the vision statement at Christ Fellowship. And here's what we need to go back to again and again and again. When you peel back all the layers, this is what we're about at Christ Fellowship. To make disciples of Jesus Christ. Every class, every activity, every function, every worship service, everything that we do in one way or another is designed to make disciples, to equip disciples so that we would be sent out first and foremost into our community, but also to the ends of the earth. Some of you will go to the ends of the earth. And that is an exciting prospect. There's also the means of consecration. We've looked at the meaning of consecration, but I want you to see the very important means of consecration. And you will see it in Jesus' prayer to the Father in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That is the means of consecration. Your word is truth. The word truth comes from a Greek word that means dependability. It means to be upright in thought and deed. And I probably don't need to tell you this, but we live in an age that is not enthralled with the truth. There was a time in American history where many Americans were enthralled with the truth. Believers and and unbelievers alike were excited about the truth, especially during the days of the Enlightenment. But now in our culture today, many people say that truth is relative. What's right for you may not be right for me. Others say this, that truth claims simply do not exist. Of course, that's a self-refuting statement as we have seen in many times before. We live in a postmodern culture. We live in a postmodern generation which in large measure rejects a single coherent worldview that explains ultimate reality. Philosophers call it the meta narrative, the overarching story. And we've seen it in times past that the overarching story can be described like this the creation of the cosmos, the fall of man, the redemption of man, and the consummation of all things. That really sums up the Christian worldview, and that's what the, the men will be discovering in greater detail in Iron Men this year. In a survey that is taken almost every year, a famous researcher asks a sample of adults their opinion on this statement. Are you ready for this? And I want to challenge you to to ask yourself, how would I respond to this question? The first thing I want to do before I read it is, is ask... I want to ask this side of the congregation, what do we have behind this, this glass uh, sheet here? Uh, let me ask, uh, BJ, what do we have right here? 
That's a set of drums. Uh, Megan, what do we have here? You have a drum set. So could we, uh, with a show of hands, just for fun, I, 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 I just want to check this out. Raise your hand if you see a set of drums. No, no, not. You guys don't, you can't participate. Just this side. Okay, so uh, every, every hand. If there's, one ra- if there's someone not raising your hand, I'm going to have you come up here and we're going to have a chat. Okay, everyone's raising their hand. This is a set of drums. Now, we'll, we'll call you Group A, right? Group A, what would you say if I went over to this side of the congregation and I asked the congregation uh, the same question? What is it that you see here? And Tyler, Tyler said, that's a sports car. Let me ask over here. I want to ask the young people. What would the young people, what would you say to Tyler if Tyler said, that's a sports car? Be nice. <laughs> I mean, be a little bit more aggressive than that. You would say, no. Who, someone shouted out. What would you say to Tyler? You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Now, listen, we live in a postmodern generation. How dare you say that Tyler's wrong? If he feels like that's a sports car, well, then it must be a sports car. It's kind of weird, but, right? Now, are we all on the same page? Now, let me ask, is everyone on this side of the congregation, this is group B, right? What do we have here behind the, the glass? Anyone? <laughs> Chris says a sports car. You can be dismissed. <laughs> Les, what do we have here? As we have a set of drums. So we can all agree it's a set of drums. Anyone who says otherwise is wrong. Wow. I like it. In this survey, this is the question that was asked. There are no such thing as absolute truth. Two people could define truth in totally conflicting ways. But both could still be correct. That's the statement. And I, I hope you're like me, and you, you scratch your bald head. Tyler, you and I can do that together, right? You, how could someone say that two competing claims could be true at the same time in the same sense? It is philosophically and practically impossible. It absolutely, absolutely makes no sense. Well, this question was sent out to many people between 1991 and 1994, the percentage of those who agree with the statement grew faster among Christians than non-Christians, with 62% of Christians rejecting absolute truth in 1994. Think about this. 62% of Christians, according to this researcher, who are rejecting absolute truth in 1994. Kirk, you said it so graciously. You're just kind of like, well, no, right? Then someone else yelled out. I think it was Kyle. You're wrong. Can we stand together and say that if you reject absolute truth, you are on a collision course. If you reject absolute truth, you are like a speeding train who runs into a brick wall. You see, consecration, sanctification comes when the Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the people of God. And so if you intend to be consecrated by the truth, you need to saturate your heart and your mind in the Word of God. You say, what does it look like? 
Well, it involves more than putting your Bible on your shelf. It involves more than putting your Bible on your desk. Rather, if we are to be consecrated by the truth, and notice again in verse 17, that is the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctify them, sanctify the people of God in the truth. Your word is truth. And so if we are to be a people who are consecrated, realize this, it does not happen by osmosis. We cannot be sanctified by merely holding the scripture and, and hoping that, that something will translate to our, our minds and our hearts. What do we need to do? The most practical thing you could ever hear, open the Bible. The Bible needs to be open. And with an open Bible, we need to read the word of God. We need to read the Word of God. We need to meditate on the Word of God. Hold your finger in John chapter 17 and go back to Psalm, the book of Psalms chapter 1. And in Psalm chapter 1, we see a stunning portrayal of what it means to be sanctified by the truth. The psalmist says it like this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And notice that there's a progression there. The progression moves from the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, that is, he's spending his time in the worldly system that we learned about last week, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. We move from one progressive point of compromise to another. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If we intend to be consecrated, we must be men and women, boys and girls of the book. And let me speak to young people, both teenagers and also children, is if, brace yourself, if you can read if you can read, if you are five years old and you can read, I'll speak to mom and dad, your son or daughter can spend time in the book. They can spend time reading and meditating on the word of God. I remember as I was just a, a young boy and I got my first Bible, I would spend time reading the word of God and meditating on the word of God. Did I understand everything? Of course not. But I began to, to develop what we referred to earlier as a Christian worldview, even as a young boy and then moving into a young man and into my adult years. We read it. We meditate on it. We memorize the Word of God. For some reason, meditation has gone, gone the way of the dinosaur in my mind in many ways. But the Word of God says to, to meditate on the Word of God, to memorize the Word of God. I have hidden your Word in my heart that I may not sin against you. And then the one that some people tend to be frustrated with, and that is we are called to study the Word of God. We do more than reading and meditate on the Word of God. We do more than memorize the Word of God, but we go to the Word of God and we study it. 
We ask what the words mean. We look at the syntax. We wonder what the original word means in the original language. We use tools. We spend time and study. The Bible says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I hope you hear the language. Sam, do you hear it? I hope you hear the language of sending, right? So that we would be equipped for every good work. Now, most of you know that I'm afraid, I'm scared to death of going to the doctor. I just, there's something about it. But that's a doctor who, in many cases, has been to four years of undergraduate school, four years of graduate school or medical school, and then even more time serving as an intern or post-postgraduate school. And these men and women have more degrees in Fahrenheit, right? But I'm still scared. Now imagine this. Imagine if you have a, a, a person who claims to be a physician, who didn't even graduate from high school. And they want to open you up. They want to open you up. They want to take the scalpel and and perform some kind of heart surgery. That's the kind of person I want nothing to do with. Why? Because that person has not been equipped. That person does not have the necessary tools to perform surgery on another human being. In like manner, we as followers of Jesus, we are called to be equipped. And being equipped takes time, it takes discipline, it takes passion, it takes devotion, it takes dedication. We come together as the body of Christ corporately to learn the Word of God and to be equipped so that we can be sent out in this community and all around the world. And so the mission-minded are consecrated by the truth, so says the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second answer to the question that emerges in verse 18. I want you to read it with me. Verse 18, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The second mark of a mission-minded follower of Jesus is that they commit to proclaim the truth. They commit to proclaim the truth. Now, the word send, you see it two times in verse 18. It comes from the Greek word apostello. Apostello. We get the word apostle from that little word. It means this. It means to send forth as a delegate. It means to, to be sent as an envoy. It means to be sent as a messenger. This is where we actually get the word missionary. Every missionary is one who is sent. That is to say, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter how much experience you have, you are called as a sent one. You are sent into the world to proclaim the truth. Now, to help us understand what Jesus is driving at, I want you to see with me the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus. And there are several things that emerge in the pages of Scripture. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we see this, that the mission of Jesus was to seek and save the lost. You see, when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that we will learn more about in December, as we study more about the life and ministry of Jesus. When Jesus came, born of the Virgin Mary, we know that he came on a mission. 
He had a job to do, and that is he sought to seek and save the lost. John chapter 3 verse 17 says that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is to say, Jesus also came to save the world. That, by the way, is not any kind of statement about universalism, because universalism is not taught in the scripture. But Jesus does come to save his people. He comes to save his people. Additionally, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. He came to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason the Son of God was manifest, was to destroy the works of the devil. And where did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? He did it at the cross. He did it in the life he lived as he perfectly kept the law. Jesus Christ destroyed the work of the devil. Number four, we see that Jesus came to die for sinners. Jesus came to die for sinners. Romans 5 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask, how many of you memorized that verse before you were 10 years old? A lot of us. It's a verse that if you were in Awana or Royal Rangers or, or some kind of a Sunday school class, it's, it's one of the key verses that Sunday school teachers want to teach children, and rightly so. But I want you to think about this verse, that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, hating God, Shaking our fist at God, running in the opposite direction from God, that Christ died for us. Can you imagine it? I want it to wash over your mind and wash over your heart and have you realize this morning in a fresh new way that Jesus died for you. Why did he do it? Romans chapter 5 says that he died so that we would have peace with God. We realize we stand with the reformers in the 16th century who taught us and rediscovered the gospel that since we have been justified by faith alone, that we have peace with God. Romans 5, 9 says that Jesus died for sinners to save sinners from the wrath of God. Romans chapter 5, 10 says that Jesus died for sinners to reconcile sinners to a holy God. Romans 3.25 says that Jesus died for sinners so that we would never have to face the wrath of God. And this is one I'm learning that, that Christians, many Christians that I talk to, they, they still are under the impression that one day they will face God's wrath. Listen, if you have trusted Jesus, you will never know the wrath of God. Praise God. You will never know the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus died to, to bear the weight of all our sin. He is our substitute. He took our sin upon himself and he imputed his very righteousness to our account. Colossians 2 says that he died to forgive us of all our sins. Not some of our sins. He died to forgive us of all of our sins. That is the mission of Jesus Christ summarized. 
But then there's the mission of, of you and I. There's the mission of the followers of Jesus. And it can be summed up in one sentence. Is we are called to live and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. You say, Pastor, I don't have a pulpit. Pastor, I'm afraid of standing behind a pulpit. My plea is this. We actually all do have a pulpit. It's called your desk at work. It's called your lectern in the university. It's called the the platform that that you rest your, your tools upon. Every Christ follower has a platform. Therefore, we're called to live out and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Jesus was sent to accomplish his work. And of course, he completed that work on Calvary's cross. We, therefore, are sent as delegates to declare the unbelievable work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christ was set apart to obey the Father by going to the cross, so too followers of Christ are called to be obedient obedient and living and proclaiming the one who died for them. Let me apply this truth briefly to our hearts and minds with a twofold application. First, I want to encourage you to remember the theological basis for missions. To remember the theological basis for missions. Would you hold your finger in John 17, if you would, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, we get a, a glimpse at the, the heartbeat of God. As verse 9 says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you, or Jesus Christ, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is every ethne. That is every people group. For you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. As we remember the theological basis for missions, I would encourage you to remember that God has a heart for the nations. God has his eye on the nations. The word of God is the foundation for missions. That's what John 17, 17 says. And therefore, on that basis, Jesus commands his disciples, not only the original band of brothers that he formed, but he calls all of his disciples, men and women all around the world to go. He commands us to go. And while missions is our job, it is God's work. For he is the one who draws and convicts and saves and sanctifies. I want you to think about this as we think rather intensely about world missions and even the way that we conduct ourselves around the world with missionaries that are sent out. And that is that the ultimate aim of missions, I'm going to stop there. The ultimate aim of missions is what? Think about that. The ultimate aim of missions is the white hot worship of God. That is the aim of missions. John Piper says in my favorite book on missions, a book entitled Let the Nations Be Glad. He says worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal in missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. You see, as we send missionaries out, 
As we go out here in Whatcom County, our goal is not first and foremost to see converts. Our goal is to see the nations satisfied with all that God is for them in Christ. That is the aim, that they would worship the great God of the universe. And so we remember the theological basis for missions. Secondly, we rekindle the urgency to proclaim the truth to the nations. And the good news is this. The church is growing all over the world. The church is growing all over the world. I double-checked some statistics as I prepared for this message and learned that in A.D. 100, and if, I, I chose not to put this on PowerPoint to muddy the waters, but if you want to jot these down, I think you'd be fascinated. In A.D. 100, there were 60,000 unreached people groups. Think about that. How many people live in Linden? 12,000? 13,000? Linden. In A.D. 100, after the church had been established, there were 60,000 unreached people groups. That's people groups, not just individual people. In 1500, in 1500, just prior to the Reformation, there were 44,000 unreached people groups. Someone do the math for me. In 1,500 years, what happened? We went from 60,000 unreached people groups to 44,000 unreached people groups. And if you're thinking like a Great Commission Christ follower, you're thinking this. The number's going down. That means the Great Commission is closer to completion. In 1,900, 40,000 unreached people groups. In 1950, 24,000 unreached people groups. You see the exponential weight of this reality? In 1980, 17,000 people groups, unreached people groups. In 1989, 12,000 unreached people groups. And then in this book that I'm reading from, the, the year 2000 is given with a question mark because the book was written before 2000. And so I looked the figure up. The latest figure I could find. What did we start with in 100? 60,000 unreached people groups. The number, the latest figure that we have is that there are 6,500 unreached people groups. Did you know that if there was one unreached people group, that we would still have the obligation to be sent out? 6,500 unreached people groups and more and more peoples are being reached with the gospel every day. Here's the bad news. Even though the church is on the move, even though the Great Commission is closer than ever to being accomplished, and indeed it will be accomplished, will it not? Is The bad news is that not everyone has heard. Not every person has heard. The island of Sumatra is an example. What do I think of when I think of Sumatra? Yeah, coffee. Probably why I picked it. But this is the fifth largest island in the world. Now listen, in 2001, there were 37 million people that lived on Sumatra. I can't fathom that. I cannot fathom it. The current population of Sumatra has grown in the last 16 years from 37 million to 50.4 million. In 1991, 86% of the Sumatran people 
the people groups on Sumatra, 86% were Muslim. Currently, 87.2% of the people on Sumatra embrace the Muslim faith. Home to some of the world's largest and least reached peoples in the world. We are called, we are called as Christ followers who are consecrated by the truth to proclaim the truth. That is our commitment. Number three, and finally, in verse 19, we see that the mission-minded now cultivate lives of truth. Look with me at John 17, verse 19. Jesus says, and for their sake, for the sake of the elect, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And simply put, Jesus himself models for us a life of truth. He commits himself to the mission. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. And so as Jesus models a life that is consecrated, we too must live lives of truth. How do we do it? First, we, we proclaim the truth both in word and in deed. We proclaim the truth in word and deed. And if you would hold your finger one more time in, in John 17 and turn over to Acts chapter 1. And many of you will know where we're going. But in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we have this great reality. Where we are told that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to all the ends of the earth. And so we begin by being witnesses where? Right where God has planted us. And so high school students at Mount Baker High School, many people need to hear the gospel. At Nooksack, many people need to hear the gospel. I hear there are a lot at Meridian that really need to hear the gospel, especially after the shellacking the other night. Here's the amazing thing. Did you know that there are students at Linden Christian that need to hear the gospel? There are people in the junior high schools that need to hear the gospel, in the grade schools that need to hear the gospel. And so we begin by being witnesses where God has planted us. And then we continue to spread the influence of the gospel to what Acts 1 calls Samaria or the state or the country that we're a part of. And then we proceed to proclaim the gospel, to cultivate lives of truth all around the world as we have a passion for the supremacy of God and the joy of all peoples. So what are the marks of the mission-minded follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Mission-minded followers of Christ are consecrated by the truth. They commit to proclaiming the truth and they cultivate lives of the truth. As we close this morning, I want to share with you, and some of you have heard this over and over again, but it's something we need to continue to repeat. I want to read for you both the mission and the vision statements of Christ Fellowship. The mission of Christ Fellowship is to help people become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The vision of Christ Fellowship is to be a high-commitment, high-grace family of Christ followers who strive to live gospel-centered and God-centered lives, equipped to reach our community and the nations with the saving message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would ask this morning, 
How is the gospel making a difference in your life? A man who I greatly respect and admire, Dr. Tim Keller, says it like this. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z in the Christian life. We are saved by believing the gospel. And then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. And so I ask once again, are you a mission-minded follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And to facilitate you in answering that question, I want to invite you to look once again in your bulletin. Today we've stuffed the bulletin with all kinds of goodies. I want you to pull out this little card that says the mission-minded, and that will match what's on the screen here in just a moment. And I want to take the last few minutes to, to challenge every single person here at Christ Fellowship. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or not a believer. This is for every single person. The question is this. Are you a mission-minded follower of Christ? And if some of you are going, oh man, I can, he's going to twist the screws. I can feel it coming. You're right. Today is the day to twist the screws and I love it. Are you a mission-minded follower of Christ? Here's how you gauge just that. Number one, in order to be a mission-minded follower of Jesus, you must first believe. You say, believe what? You must believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's why this applies to everyone. If you have yet to believe, you must first believe so that your sins would be forgiven. So that they would be cast into the deepest ocean, so that they would be hidden behind God's back, so they would be separated as far as the east is from the west. When you become a Christian, if you were to ask God five seconds after you became a Christian, God, do you remember the sin that you, God would say, no, actually I don't. Because he forgets your sins. He separates your sins as far as the east is from the west. That's the first and most important step to be in a mission-minded follower of Christ. And I realize the vast majority of you have already done that. And so let's move on to number two. In order to be a mission-minded follower of Christ, I want to challenge you to be baptized. The challenge to be baptized, Jesus Christ calls his disciples to be baptized, which is a, a public way of proclaiming your faith in him to your church family, to your immediate family, your friends, and the world. Number three, I want to encourage you to not only be a believer and to be baptized, but to become a member of a local church. Some of you may be visiting today, and you're members of another church. That's great. But the challenge is to become a member and to be held accountable by a local family of believers. One pastor I respect a great deal says the local church is the place where love is most visibly and compellingly displayed among God's people. It's where the body of Christ is most plainly represented in the world. And I think he's right on target. And this is where we begin to really turn the screws, as it were. We not only believe, we not only be baptized and become a member of a local church, but the fourth component is this in order to be a mission-minded follower of christ let me encourage you to begin by using your spiritual gift or your spiritual gifts 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You see, the moment you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit grants you, gives you, sovereignly and graciously gives you at least one spiritual gift. Some of you have many spiritual gifts, but every believer has at least one. And so the challenging question for you today is to ask, Where am I plugged in? Am I plugged into children's ministry? Am I plugged into youth ministry? Am I serving on a ministry action team? Am I involved in personal evangelism? Steve challenged you a few moments ago with the coffee forum. And let me publicly say to Jerry and and to Betsy, thank you so much for for many years of service. And we look forward to having you back soon uh, because there's much more to be done. But thank you so much for your faithfulness. This is a great opportunity for someone to do some behind-the-scenes work. And you talk about sanctification. Coffee, are you with me? Okay. This is a great ministry that, that... needs to take place. And so I want to challenge you. As I was thinking about this earlier, as Steve and I talked about it, I thought it would be kind of a cool thing if a couple people had to fight over. Who did it? No, I want to do it. No, I want to do it. Wouldn't that be cool? You could all do it. You could both do it. The challenge is this. If someone came up to you next week and they said, Joe, Martha, Cindy, Denise, Roger, What's your ministry at Christ Fellowship? And you could say, that's my ministry. That's what I do. Is it Noah or Lincoln that picks up the communion cups or both? The strikes, my boys, little boys. They could say, my ministry is to pick up the communion cups. Isn't that wonderful? That's their ministry. It could be as simple as that. Or my ministry is I teach young people. Or I'm involved in personal discipleship. Or I do street evangelism. Or I visit the sick. Or I go to the hospital. That's my ministry. And so the challenge for us as a church family, if someone came up to you and said, what's your ministry? You would be able to say, this is it. This is how God has gifted me. And this is how I am involved. I want to encourage you to hang on to this card and to think about this and to pray about this and to put it in your Bible, to put it on your refrigerator, to put it on the dash of your car, to put it someplace where you can be reminded about the importance of being a mission-minded follower of Jesus. For mission-minded followers of Jesus are consecrated by the truth, commit to proclaiming the truth, and they cultivate lives of truth. And here's the amazing thing. When you are consecrated by the truth, when you proclaim the truth, when you cultivate a life that is built on the truth, the kingdom of God comes into sharper focus. Your your priorities will be realigned and reignited. The gospel will make inroads into the lives of people. And the mission of God will move forward so that he receives all the glory. As we close, I want to say something very important, and we mentioned it in Veritas this morning as well, is that we're engaged in ministry as mission-minded followers of Jesus. It's not a matter of pumping ourselves up. It's not a matter of mere self-discipline. Every act that we engage in is informed and fueled by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit.
We can't do any of this on our own. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And so every class that is taught, every sermon that is preached, every person that receives counseling, every person that receives or hears the gospel, every act of goodness and every act of kindness and every kind word or wonderful note that is written, all of those acts are informed and fueled and powered by the gospel and the Holy Spirit. In that way, God gets all the glory and we stand back and watch as mission-minded followers of Christ. Do you stand among the mission-minded? So you have the the path before you. The the path has been charted. And my prayer is that in the weeks and months ahead, you would be able to say, yes, I am a mission-minded follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may that come to pass here at Christ Fellowship. May lives um, be in alignment with your kingdom priorities. We recognize the, the importance of the gospel in all these things. We thank you as we thank you oftentimes that we've been saved from the power of sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. And one day we will be saved from sin's very presence. God, we give you the glory now. We give you the the glory in advance for all that you will do here in our church family. We pray that that many lives would be changed, that people in Whatcom County, people here in Everson and Nooksack and Sumas and Linden and Bellingham and Kendall, that lives would be changed, that lives would be touched by the the transforming effects of the gospel. Help us, God, to be uh, faithful in dispensing the message of the gospel. We give you the glory once again and trust you to do great things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the month of October is a special month because at the end of the month we celebrate, someone help me, Yeah, Reformation Day, Reformation Sunday. We're one year away from the 500th year celebration. Something big's going to happen here on, on that day. It's going to be exciting. So in light of that, this month's book recommendation, if you want to take a peek at this in your bulletin, I decided to uh, put a, a children's book in that uh, gives you a, a good glimpse at a person who was a mission-minded follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is Martin Luther. It's a book called The Barber Who Wanted to Pray. And uh, Jereen and I read this to our kids when they were growing up. So this is a, a great gift for a grandchild or a small child or a big child child like me. I mean, it's a wonderful little book. So we have a couple available in the back if you want to pick one up. If, if they go today, we'll order more for next week. Let's pray together. Father, once again, I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, enable us to be mission-minded followers. May we uh, stand uh, according to biblical principles, uh, refusing to compromise the truth, and standing strong in the gospel. We recognize that apart from the gospel, we are nothing. And so thank you for liberating us. Thank you for delivering us from all our sins. And I pray that you would uh, mobilize this church family to be sent out both in this in this community all around the world all for the great name's sake of jesus in his name we pray amen, amen.